Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencien. Surrealism is one of the art movements to have become recognizable even to those who have no training in art's history. Surrealism, according to the definition offered by Tate's website, aims to revolutionize human experience. It balances a rational vision of life with one that asserts the power of our unconscious and of dreams. Surrealism then produces images and artifacts that are rooted firmly outside the real and that evade rational descriptions. For many artists, however, the practice of surrealist art took on an explicitly political and therefore practical dimensions. In Surreal Sabotage and the War on Work, art historian Abigail Sasek argues that surrealist artists tried to transform the work of art into a form of unmanageable anti-work. Abigail Sasek is Associate Professor of Art History at Williamette University and a co-editor of the recent Surrealism and Film after 1945. She joins me for a conversation about what the politics of work has meant to the early French Surrealists, the feminist labour practice of artists like Simone Breton, and the imagery of typewriters and sewing machine that permeates Surrealist creation. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pierre. I'm delighted to be here. I don't know how often one can say that a work of art history catches the zeitgeist in a certain sense, but Abigail, the two things that you discuss in your book, that is surrealism and the idea of sabotage or the refusal to work, both seem to be on the horizon at the moment. Um, in the case of surrealism, I think that's kind of simple to frame, thinking in particular about the um, exhibition Global Surrealism that has just come to Tate Modern from the Met in New York. But in the background, thinking about the changes in labor over the last um, couple of years, we are witnessing what the papers have termed the Great Resignation. So I'm interested in thinking about how it is that you managed to stay this incredible coup of research and writing. Thanks, Pierre. That's a good question, and it has a long history. Um, I am from Florida, the west coast of Florida, and in my hometown of St. Petersburg, Florida, we only ha- we have the largest museum <laughs> devoted to Salvador Dali in the world. And um, oh wow, I I grew up looking at that from a very early age. It's I probably went there, you know, a few times a year with my parents and school groups. So by the time I went to college um, in New York City, I went to Barnard College, which is the Women's College of Columbia. This was in the mid-90s. We just so happened to have at the time some of the most uh, important art historians in the United States at that university, um, one of whom was Rosalind Krauss, who mm-hmm. wrote a lot about surrealism. But uh, as a sophomore in college, I wandered into a graduate lecture on surrealism by Professor Krauss and was allowed to stay in it, despite the fact that I was an <laughs> undergraduate. And um, basically, my mind was completely blown. And uh, <laughs> I read everything on the syllabus, everything else I could find, and haven't stopped thinking about it ever since. Um, And then I continued on to uh, a doctorate um, at Columbia University across the street from Barnard with Dr. Krauss and other professors like John Crary and Benjamin Buclo, 
most of whom weren't interested in surrealism. <laughs> and a lot of things Professor Krauss wrote weren't about surrealism, um, but I stayed with that, as did some of my colleagues who graduated from the program. Um, and it, it has um, continued to unfold in very humbling ways in the sense that there's always something new to learn about surrealism, uh, especially if you study contemporary or living surrealism. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are still living surrealists today around the world, uh, many surrealist groups, and that, that's a horizon of activity that is voluminous. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Well, we'll get to them. But And first of all, I'm kind of blown away by the idea that Dali and Krauss might be gateway drugs to, to surrealism, <laughs> particularly that Dali quite famously did not take any drugs and claimed that he himself was a drug. Um, but we're talking about a movement that's now at least 100 years old, and you, you just, just ended on saying but that surrealism still exists, that these practices are still cultivated. But, I've, but it is quite difficult to imagine that we can be talking about one movement, one set of ideas for such an extended period. So maybe let's take it step by step. Let's, let's go to France. Let's go to the late 1910s. Um, a lot is happening in, the French, in French politics. We've just emerged from the First World War labor unions are being formed, politics is coming to the kind of shape that we associate with 20th century French intellectualism and you know, strike every other weekend and protest marches. Who are the surrealists and what happens then? And I apologize already for asking such a broad and such a, such a basic question. This is a great question. And I actually don't think it's too broad because one of my aims with the book was to cast a picture of surrealism that had more relevance than is typically thought um, possible for the present day. And so, you know, I began the book, um, I began thinking about the book in 2015 and ramping up toward it in 2016. Um, and the pandemic didn't occur, the pan coronavirus no. pandemic didn't unfold until I was nearly finished with the book. But increasingly, as I was writing it, um, I thought that these conditions were um, remarkably parallel in certain regards. Mm. There's obviously huge differences between now and the 1920, early 1920s. But to answer your question directly, um, the Surrealists were um, primarily uh, in France, uh, initially, a group of young men. There were some young women who were from bourgeois, middle-class backgrounds, mm. mostly from around Paris, but some of them from the provinces, um, who had good you know, educations and, and uh, were interested in professional careers. World War I commences in 1914, and being French, they're expected to sign up. And so um, most of the initial participants of what came to be called surrealism were veterans. They fought in the war, or they had different positions, some of them medical positions. Um, some of them weren't able to actually go to the front, but most of them were. And that was, of course, a transformative experience that's absolutely fundamental to our understanding of what surrealism is. By the time that the war is concluding in 1918, you have so many pressures happening in various European countries. And France in particular um, is has a massive uh, loss of life. They're struggling terribly with their economy. They actually have an economic situation that in some ways reflects on, on a you know, maybe a microscopic level what, we, mm -hmm. what we're seeing now. They had horrible inflation low wages. Um, and so a huge strike movement uh, 
really got going, I mean, of course, there were strikes all through the war, but between 1917 and 1920, as you said, there was just this intensity of strike action. Um, It was relentless, and it did result in some very important transformative changes for labor, the most important of which was the legalization of the eight-hour workday in 1919. But then, of course, the pandemic is breaking out at this time as well, just over, you know, 100 years ago, um, with um, a loss of life that exceeded the death toll in the war, Mm -hmm. in particular in France. Um, And so, this was just a, a very fraught time. The first experiments in automatic writing, which is the form of surrealist writing, yeah. which requires that the uh, writer actually loses um, contact with their conscious mind. This is all going on during the Spanish influenza pandemic, during the third wave of it. So it's a lot of different factors that um, Im- you know what were impacting a group of young people in their early 20s. And there were, of course, female participants, which I talk about and, and maybe we'll discuss mm-hmm. in a portion of my book. Um, but by and large, these were you know, white, French, middle-class veterans. Well, a lot of art history is driven by, by white, French, middle-class, not necessarily veterans, but, 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 but two out of three ain't bad, really, for, for a start. But but since since we've already got into the, the the bourgeois provenance and and the circumstances that that everyone is living through at the time, let's think a little bit about the political outlook of the French artist intellectual at, towards the end of the 1910s. What is the political formation that these these creators do? And maybe we can we can start dropping some names. Of course, we're looking towards. The, um, the Surrealist Revolution, the Manifesto, with people like Louis Aragon and André Breton being amongst the leaders or rather the most prominent producers. What is it that they get together to do and how do you see the conflation of aesthetic and artistic and, and kind of you know, bourgeois interest in, in artistic expression and the political consciousness that, that brings them together? What, what are the greatest inputs like beyond the the experiences of the war and beyond beyond what they observe that's that's a helpful place to begin and it, it is a huge question so surrealism officially forms in 1924 but it is um sort of these ideas and energies are fomenting before that and and certainly right after the war um there and then there's a concentration of activity in 1922 Despite the fact that the initial journal, group journal in Paris is called La Révolution Surréaliste, there is not, I would say, um, a party-focused politics for the Mm. group. So quite famously, their approach to the Parti Communiste Française, the French Communist Party, only happens after they've already launched their journal in the second half of the 1920s. They grapple with this party membership, party alignment for the next 10 years up until 19, mm-hmm. the middle of the 1930s. Um, so that is that comes to be, for a period, their dominant political orientation would be Marxist. However, 
As many scholars have noted, there were other political influences and ideological influences before that. In particular, Breton was deeply influenced by anarchism in his youth and actually talked about his first political awakening as a young man in terms of watching anarchists in action in the street, you know, the, the black flag of anarchism being um, the you know, the, the way in which his, his um, inspired feelings of resistance to the bourgeois class were ignited. And, you know, his interest in anarchi- anarchism as a form of uh, resistant criminality as well. Mm-hmm. He was fascinated by some gangs, anarchist gangs. And as I argue, there was an interest in general in the group in sabotage, in different forms of, of sabotage acts and strike acts, which were, strike was considered a form of sabotage at this time as well. So those were the two, two sort of dominant political ideas. But as surrealism develops later, and I think it's already there in the beginning, they always uh, were interested in and drawn to outliers, theoretically, mm-hmm. um, idealistically, who were what we might call today utopian socialists. And most, a lot of that doesn't develop until later on in the 30s and 40s for the French group. However, I would say that there there is, you know, early on a desire to think about radical political thought beyond beyond party lines or beyond just, uh, you know, practical avenues for revolution or for political resistance. Um, and so that is maybe nodding toward the second part of your question, which mentions mm. Paul Lafargue, the right to be lazy. Um, Lafargue um, is the son-in-law of Karl Marx, um, and um, you know is is very active in the formation of communism as a party structure in the late 19th century. But writes a text in the late 1880s um, that is part satirical, part serious about um, you know the reduction of the working day to four hours a day, um, three days a week, um, and of course it's sort of um, it's a notion of this vindication of the human right to resist labor. Mm-hmm. They don't get interested in this. The surrealists don't get interested in that until a little bit later on. Um, we don't know for sure, but arguably it's only around 1930. That they get a hold of Lafargue. But, you know, to speak more broadly to this idea of class treason, bourgeois class treason, which is at the heart of the surrealist identity that is mm-hmm. there from the very beginning. And um, I think, you know, it's always easy to be skeptical of class or gender or race traitorship, right? I mean, how how deep can this go? And so that skepticism is really important. Um, and it's actually important to the formation of my project. Um, mm. I'm interested in the impossibility of this pro- of of their of their aims, right? Almost the I wouldn't <laughs> call it futility, but the impossibility of it. And so they are inspired by Baudelaire. They are inspired by that whole you know lineage of the French avant-garde coming up in the middle of the 19th century, in particular. Um, of course, someone like Courbet is interesting to them. Um, the rise of symbolism, you know, those proponents of post-impressionism who were radicals, who were anarchists, but particularly symbolism, you know, this is something that has a long aesthetic tradition in the French avant-garde in particular. We could say that they are following in the footsteps of the radicalized 
branches of the French avant-garde. I do think that there are some important differences with, let's say, um, the bohemian idea of the dandy. Mm-hmm. I- I'm actually quite eager to distance what I call surrealist wage labor abolitionism from the notion of the dandy. There is um, an increased politicization with surrealism, absolutely. And there is a a concrete belief in revolution um, for a time. And actually, it never goes away. But the idea that the the, the revolution, the societal, political, social revolution that's desired could happen wanes for the group by the 1950s, the idea that it could happen in their lifetimes, sort of like mm. the way that the 60s counterculture believes many of them in the late 60s that a revolution is is at their fingertips. But by the 70s, we see that this goal has been pushed back. Um, so I would want to distinguish surrealism from the rest of the earlier French avant-garde's, but but as you are sort of pointing out, this intensity of this political consciousness doesn't come about fully until the 1930s with the group. Hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. I have been troubled recently by, by developments in artistic practices and in what we refer to globally as the art world, which is you know, at one stage, glo- at one, one way globalized and another completely subject to the kind of divisions that all forms of labor are. But given that we've seen um, really concerted efforts over the last 20 years to rehabilitate artistic practices as forms of labor, as to think of them quite often in Marxist terms, I think we, we're in a very strange position where, again, the lack of understanding of where class plays itself in, in those conversations, is, is now kind of coming to bite us. <laughs> And I was very, very interested to find out that this question remains unresolved for over a hundred years, given that it's already floated in, clearly not for the first time, even um, it, it's already happening in 1920s France. But I want us to now finally get into the, the crux of your book, which is the demand against work, the, the, the work of sabotage. You have this nice vignette from the poet Saint-Roux who displays a sign above his bedroom, which reads, the poet was working. And, and that, I think, points to this kind of impossibility of the demand. If, if work is to be abolished, presumably artistic labor should also be abolished. But I don't want to maybe read too much into that particular example, but I'm interested in your reading of where it is that you think the surrealists are interested in labor in particular, and of course they do that formally, but also where we might be seeing their interest in labor as something that they observe in society and interact with in in the practices themselves. Good questions that go right to the heart of some of the semantic issues with the book. Mm -hmm. And I want to just clarify outright that because now we use the word work for all kinds of labor, there is um, a, a sort of parsing that needs to happen with what precisely the surrealist approach is that I'm mm-hmm. highlighting. And so I try to do this in my introduction, but you know, I think it actually needs to be said again and again. And so I'm I'm particularly interested 
in the protest demand, the principled refusal of wage labor as a system of alienated paid work by which a worker is employed by a boss, right? There are many, many systems Mm. and activities that could relate to human work, human production, human creativity, but wage labor is one of them that, of course, is specific to the capitalist structure. This is particularly what the Surrealists opposed as an affront to human dignity. And and so they are anti-capitalist. They want to envision a post-wage labor world or a post-capitalist world with all of the difficulty that that still, um, you know, that still uh, offers us. That's still a problem we, we don't really know how to solve. Um, and so, you know, I, I do believe that the Surrealists aren't opposed to Uh, work or labor in general. So for instance, later on in the middle of the 20th century, you have someone like Hannah Arendt trying to make Mm. the distinction between work, labor, and action. That argument doesn't so much apply to what I'm talking about because I'm not arguing that the Surrealists want to refuse all uh, all kinds of productive action or um, basically agency-based production. Actually, I'm very interested in the idea that they were drawn to attractive labor, which is something that the 19th century utopian socialist fascinating person Charles Fourier talks Mm. about. And he he aligns work with eroticism. He aligns the feeling of, of eros with the drive to produce, the human need to produce. And so there's a, a funny you know, specificity to this protest demand that I'm analyzing um, because, of course, the Surrealists were incredibly engaged. They were highly active. They were constantly publishing, constantly um, making artworks. Um, and so there are kind of levels of this question. When we back away from the protest demand of wage labor abolitionism, then we can get a little bit more into the sticky question mm. of artwork or artwork as a form of labor, um, which I was fascinated to think about in the early years of surrealism a hundred years ago, because you know at that time we're really seeing the rise of information labor on a wide scale as we know it today, and of course it has you know, this was something that's been going on since the invention of the printing press, but um, there's an intensity of it uh, during and after World War One, increased mechanization um, and yeah. the, um, you know, multiplication uh, by the millions of information workers, information laborers. And so this is when, when we get into these more abstract forms of wage labor, where I think it becomes harder for us us to you know distinguish the ways in which work could be a form of should be a form of oppression that is to be resisted mm-hmm. and that we find overlap with our lives today and so this this sort of agonized relationship to artwork or knowledge work that the Surrealists have. It's an embattled position and unresolved one, I think actually speaks to where we are at today when a large number and a portion of the society in uh, capitalist nations around the world are increasingly what we might call information laborers of all yeah. kinds, right? Uh, doing um, the kinds of labor that is more abstracted um, than we might say 
prior manifestations of factory line work. I wonder whether we could pick up on, on the magic words that you, you mentioned in your answer, and that is technology. Technology is still a thing that we seem to fetishize today as either the beginning or the end of all our problems. But it's very difficult not to read your book without thinking about typewriters and sewing machines quite a lot. And these are these are the two things that that for the surrealists seem to symbolize ideas of progress and 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 with that both the kind of liberation and also the enslavement that that these 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 things do. I want to start by saying that I came ultimately to feel that the surrealists did not. And and of course, when you talk about surrealism, you're talking about thousands of participants over the Mm -hmm. course of 100 years. Maybe not thousands, but somewhere in the low thousands, um, Mm -hmm. uh, many people. So I I don't want to speak for the movement as a whole. um, But but focusing particularly on the French group in this initial period, the Paris-based group, that there was actually a lot of pessimism about the idea as a form of liberty from commodification. I actually, my opinion is, my thesis is that they were very aware of the commodification of art, even at a very early point in time, um, and were the um, you know, maybe we could call it the institutionalization of art. We would say that today, um, the uh, social acceptance of art in terms of mm-hmm. dominant groups that they wanted to resist that. So I don't, I don't see art as for this particular group initially as a form of free play, a Kantian free play that is not attached to labor. I was interested in the conflation of art and, and work um, with surrealism. Um, now, my choice of basing the case studies in the book. So I did, probably influenced by someone like Friedrich Kittler, um, focus on quite a bit on the individual devices, labor devices that surrealism seemed preoccupied with. And there are many of these, actually, um, uh, quite a few that I wasn't able to showcase. Um, But I did choose the typewriter as, um, in a way, the core emblem of chapter two and the sewing machine as the star of chapter three. But these are, (laughs) and these are, these are based in specific artworks, which maybe we'll discuss by in particular, a a photograph by Man Ray from the mid twenties and a painting by Oscar Dominguez from the mid 1930s. But but I talk about the way in which this these images of these machines proliferate it, in the movement and text and an image photograph and artwork right in document and in in construction and um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was because you could talk about surrealist wage labor abolitionism as an idea or a theory um, and a component of their theoretical political tracks over a number of decades. But as an art historian, of course, I mm. wanted to bring in the image and the the incredible archive of associations and possibilities that the artwork brings into an argument. And artwork is, you know, fully contingent. It could take an argument anywhere. Uh, I mean, a scholarly argument. Also, it allowed me to begin to think about not just class issues, um, uh, you know, post-war class issues, but also gender, which... Um, you know, as a feminist was really important to me to think about how we could connect these to surrealism's very complicated relationship to the gender binary in society. And um, so, and, and well, maybe I'll explain, expand more upon this. And I want to try to answer your question fully, but 
the I would say that technology and surrealism is a fraught relationship. The surrealists are not technophiles. They don't mm. celebrate technology consistently. They tend more, I would say, across the board with various groups to be skeptical of technology. No. Because technology, as we know it today, is the right hand of capitalism, which they were had no, you know, they had no confusion about. They were anti-capitalists. They they thought that the entire system was corrupt and um, was destroying the planet and and was an enemy of humanity as a whole. And um, so if, if nothing, we can always lean back on surrealism's anti-capitalism if we're confused <laughs> about some of the other positions. But, um, yeah. but at the same time, Pierre, technology for the surrealists was interesting in the sense that it could be rerouted or thwarted yeah. in order to, let's say, um, in order to take on a different speculative relationship to humans. And this is where someone like Charles Fourier, Charles Fourier is really helpful because um, the eroticism of Fourier's factory is something that the surrealists, when they found it in, you know, in the forties were like, heck yes, this is, this sounds great. Like, you know, um, having, having sex and love and work all be tied up with the machine was very appealing to them. And so mm. both of the case studies relating to the typewriter and the sewing machine deal with gender, but also deal with sexuality. Um, in particular, for me, both of those devices were about, I mean, we could say it in a very simple way, the erotic pleasure and displeasure of control and autonomy, um, dominance and submission, right? The this uh, dialectic of yeah. of sexuality that tends to, you know, that it that is present in all human sexuality, um, in the gender binary in particular. If, if we're focusing on the binary of male and female, of course, it takes on um, a number of interesting inflections in terms of power roles. But and I could expand more on how how the typewriter and the sewing machine figure in surrealism as tools of dominance or submission or resistance. Mm, well, let's do it, definitely. Um, the typewriter seems like a natural place to start. I guess um, automatic writing and André Breton and the typewriter are one of the first things that come to mind when I think about the beginnings of surrealism. But in the book, you actually uh, look at Breton's wife, Simone, as the as the exponent of this. And I'm looking at a photograph by Man Ray that you reproduce in the book. That seems to be like a perfect poster for one of these dream seances that the Surrealists became famous for. So this is dated 1924. We have a whole bunch of men, um, you know, André Breton, Paul Edouard, um, Pierre Neville, Giorgio de Chirico, um, Jacques Baron. And all of them, all of them are hunched over the only woman in the photograph, that is Simone Breton. And we're immediately left with the question of what her role in this whole enterprise was, whether she is one of the artists that just happens to be at the center of attention, or whether she's a secretary and a transcriber of someone else's dictation. And where you take this in the book is, is I think, a very interesting question of the nature of labor, particularly in the wake of the recent war effort in which female labor was perfectly acceptable in this kind of rising secretarial classes. It was perfectly acceptable within 
um, the realm of the factory line, but not necessarily still in many other aspects of public life and productivity. There's an interest in this photograph that you mentioned by Man Ray actually began while I was at work, which is what I talk about in the beginning of chapter two of my book. I was teaching and my students were looking at this image of Man Ray's, which is a posed photograph illustrating the Bureau of Research that the Surrealists as a group founded in Paris um, at the very beginning of the movement, at the launch of their new journal, The Surrealist Revolution, in order to facilitate collective activity, but also invite members of the public to come in and participate by dropping in to say, I, you know, I had this amazing dream last night, or I had a, um, an unexplained coincidence happen, or I found this object that's bothering me, this kind of psychic activity that interested the Surrealists, um, of course, with organizing activity going alongside that in terms of organizing organizing as a collective. Um, but the photograph is one of, of a series, um, and I have many of those other photographs in the book. And they, uh, three of them were chosen to grace the cover of the initial issue of their new journal, The Surrealist Revolution. And many, many scholars have talked about the essay in particular, or rather the image in particular that I focus on. Um, and uh, this image of this iconic image of Simone at the typewriter with the surrealist poet Robert Desnos kneeling at her feet, um, presumably reciting, uh, well, actually, that's not really a great word, but, you know, speaking surrealist, live surrealist automatism. And my students were confused. You know, is Simone mm. also writing automatism? Is she copying what Desnos is saying? Um, and so I tried to... to parse that out in, in the chapter, but but the act of doing that, of thinking about the politics of the image or the construction of the image, was just a way of kind of getting to the heart of what automatism was in general. And, you know, automatism had a bad name, even within, you know, the surrealist group. Many participants were critical of it during and after its development. Um, and um, certainly over the course of the 20th century, secondary and tertiary responses to automatism have been skeptical. This sort of idea that auto surrealist automatism as developed from um, ideas in parapsychology, spiritualism, and early psychotherapy, the idea that you could actually, if you let your consciousness become dormant or passive that you could have contact with the dream world or what they call the unconscious. This is, of course, it's natural to be skeptical of this. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to think about the materialist implications of this, which is a definitely a counterintuitive approach to automatism, not a typical approach to think about you know, does it, does automatism um, link in any way to the structures of labor, to the trappings of an everyday job? And um, also, I think it, it, in a way, if we can think about the possibility of automatism being a critical replication of what you might call submission to compliance, submission to mm -hmm. the routines of work, gives automatism a critical edge again which it might 
might lose if we just think of it as a form of free association or a nice way of making poetry. You know, um, I'm I'm interested in those aspects of surrealism that uh, could remind us today to um, keep honing our critical skills of opposition and resistance to authority. So um, I'm making big claims for my <laughs> argument and, and for what automatism could be seen as, but I, I wanted to tease that out. I didn't, I don't want automatism to sort of die an ignominious death in the, in the histories of the movement. Well, maybe let's, let's not let it. I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to your proposal that automatic writing is kind of difficult to Maintain as a as a tradition that, that that grows. It certainly is something that's quite difficult to think about in translation. With that said, I wonder if I could ask you to do a reading from any of your favorite surrealists. Yes, Pierre. Ready? Thank you. This is a text by Simone Kahn, who married Andre Breton in the early 1920s, and she is the focus of my chapter two. Um, Simone Kahn Breton has always been an important part of surrealism. Certainly, she's at the center of this image we were discussing by Man Ray, um, and yet. Scholarship hasn't often accorded her a place as one of the surrealists. This is all changing in France right now in particular. There is a wonderful wave of scholarship that is showing us that Simone Kahn Breton wasn't merely the wife of Breton, but was an absolutely central member, contributor uh, of the group, and also a producing automatist herself, um, who was very active. And so I'll read from a book that's very important for the field of surrealism studies. It's called Surrealist Women, an International mm -hmm. Anthology which uh, was edited um, by Penelope Rosemont, who is a living member of the Chicago Surrealist Group that was active starting in the 1960s. So this is a translation by du Guy Ducournay of a text that Simone wrote in the 1920s. It's an automatist text, and it is called Surrealist Text, This Took Place in Springtime. This took place in springtime in a garden where the customary glowworms were replaced by black pearls with the virtue of emitting but one beam of light, which burns out the spot where it falls. You wish my breast to be a snowball, said the young woman. Very well, I agree, but what will you do for me in return? Make a wish, my divine, and I hope I can fulfill it. I wish you to have, for seven days, as many sexes as you have fingers on your right hand. And it happened that the young man was instantly transformed into a starfish. The girl leaned over him, smiling contentedly. She thought, what am I to do? I did not know it was so easy to get rid of an over-eager suitor. I am left with the trees and their majestic embraces. She had overlooked the ocean. Furious to see one of its children insulted by an earthling, it secretly invaded the land to take him back and seek revenge. The girl was soon nothing but a transparent veil on the calm waters, smartly governed by the wind, its movements following the capricious waves. An event occurred then which no romantic imagining can justify. A seagull seized the veil and took it to the secret cabin of a ship captain. 
He was an austere and passionate man with two favorite occupations, to inflict upon the cheeks of his men an inflation which he called hysterical vernal, and to use poems specifically written for them in order to tame fishes caught in the bellies of sharks. And so he was quite taken aback when, coming into the cabin, where he kept the materials he needed for his experiments, he suddenly felt himself choking on a perfume similar to the sound of a violin dipped in holy oil, which, due to a characteristic not found in other scents, imprinted on his eyes a slight weight. He knew right away that it could evolve into stupefying visions, and from that moment on, nothing could astonish him. And I'll stop there. It goes on a little bit longer. Um, oh, but you. as you can see, no thank narrative. You. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I'm not entirely sure whether I would agree with, with your assertion that the narrative doesn't really emerge, but I guess that's slightly outside the scope of our conversation today. Um, I have to tell you that only a couple of weeks ago, I was at a party where um, a man in his early 30s was doing automatic writing for guests. So the tradition certainly does does live on. Um, I'm glad to hear it's alive. <laughs> I like that poem by Simone because she talks about the, you know, uh, gender tension between male and female, and the female has this sort of agency in which she turns the man into a, a multi, a polysexed starfish, which is an amazing image. Well, a beautiful and haunting image indeed. Um, I don't know if I have a good enough segue from here to take us to another one of your case studies. So let's just plow on. I'm thinking in particular about your work on the 1934 uh, painting by Oscar Dominguez entitled The Electrosexual Sewing Machine. I'm going to include a link to an image, a reproduction of this painting for listeners. And I thoroughly recommend that you have a look at it now. I'm going to only in a very perfunctory way try to describe what we're looking at. So um, we have a torso perched over what could be a cliff. The torso is naked except for a white sheet that's covering its head and the whole body is being held in something that could well be an arm of a sewing machine, a sewing machine that rather than producing thread and stitches pours blood into, um, into the spine of, of, of the woman. Um, now, there's a lot to get on with here and that's not necessarily unusual in a surrealist painting but I was also surprised, but maybe also depressingly not surprised at all, to see you note that the sewing machine was um, an object of study and speculation by all sorts of doctors and pseudoscientists in the late 19th century on grounds of its potential to generate unwanted or maybe uncontrolled female orgasms. So we're coming with quite a lot of baggage here. And I want to ask you to perform the unenviable task of unpacking all of these things for us. Oh, thank you, Pierre, for giving me the opportunity to talk about this most experimental and ad adventurous and speculative chapter in my book. I was troubling myself over how and what to think about all of the sewing machines and the movement. I was interested in the work tool as a topic, especially as it appears in surrealist artworks. And when I began to examine the concentration of the depiction of sewing machines in the work of the uh, Spanish Canarian uh, artist Oscar Dominguez, he's from the Canary Islands, 
um, I said, well, this is, this is not just a passing fancy. This is not just an imagistic motif. This is a full-blown iconography, as we would say it in art history, that um, seems to be very relevant and is attached to um, other preoccupations of his that also related to work tools sometimes, or in other cases, kind of implements, um, useful appliances. Um, he's also interested in bicycles, for instance. So not all of them are just work tools in his oeuvre. But the sewing machine was really dominant for him. And one of the earliest and most important, most well-known is this painting you mentioned, the machine a coudre electrosexuelle, the electrosexual sewing machine from the mid-30s. Yeah, I mean, the image is completely befuddling. I mean, it is, there's absolutely, I mean, it's it's stranger than a Dali to mention this other mm. artist. It's, it's really difficult to read. And what happened was I was trying to figure out, you know, how, where is the sewing machine here and how does this work? Um, I was really starting from scratch. I'm not a Dominguez expert. And um, so I had to work from the most well-known surrealist associations with the sewing machine, which have to do with this 19th century, late 19th century French writer named uh, Isidore Ducasse, who had the pen name of the Comte de l'Autrement in a, a famous book called The Songs of Maldoror. Um, Basically, we have this writer, Ducasse Le Tremont, making a famous statement about the chance meeting of a sewing machine and a typewriter on a dissecting table. And Le Tremont is actually talking about this, this typewriter um, meeting the umbrella. I'm sorry, what did I say? The umbrella and sewing machine on at a dissecting table. Forgive me. It's, I think I said typewriter. <laughs> I'm obviously yeah. preoccupied. Umbrella and sewing yeah. machine. So... Um, he, he, uh, Le Tremont is talking about this in the context of a homosexual love affair that's going on between an older man and a younger man, um, and which ends in murder. So I won't say say anything else um, as a spoiler alert. It would be difficult to spoil Le Tremont because there's no real narrative. But um, it's, it's also so they, been out for some some years. I imagine everyone yes. who needed to read it has already read it. <laughs> so it sounds a great story. Trigger warning. I mean, it's an intense book. Um, I'll put it next to a Dennis Cooper novel, maybe, from what you described. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. All all, all gay sex is best best when it ends in death, by the sound of it. (laughs) Well, and and that's another whole aspect of the surrealist interest in Le Tremont, that um, the the homosexual aspect here has not fully been connected with the movement in terms of their love of his work Mm. and Breton's famous hope of homophobia. But in any case, um, so, you know, why are they interested in that image, the sewing machine and the typewriter on the dissection table? Most people link it to kind of the idea of poetic juxtaposition and surprise. But I I got, you know, what, allured by, again, this deep history. I go into these sort of deep histories of certain uh, material culture uh, factoids in the book, and and one of them is about the history of the sewing machine. And so it is true that as when the sewing machine was invented in the 19th century, uh, the middle of the 19th century, um, and increasingly began to be used by female garment workers, and and female garment workers was really the first um, mass wave of feminized labor that we see of women entering the wage labor market well before um, information labor with Mm -hmm. the typewriter. Um, There was in France 
this extensive medical outcry and fear that the work on the sewing machine would cause involuntary orgasms mm-hmm. by the woman, which could then lead to things like infertility, lesbianism, um, all kinds of degeneracy, of course. Um, and it was a real belief. It, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, I would say, not everybody agreed with this, but it was a widespread discourse. Um, so I, you know, there's a lot of work you could do to say, well, is Lautremont interested in that image? And, um, but not having as much time to connect it to Lautremont, I want to move right back into the surrealism, my analysis. And so I show the way that this painting, if you look at it, um, and there's a diagram in the book, um, is actually linked to a series of visual and linguistic puns on the French words for the various parts of the typewriter. Um, so it's actually kind of a technical manual. And instead of there being a piece of fabric in this strange surrealist sewing machine, you have a body, most likely a female body, not entirely clear, certainly a feminine body um, who is being run under the machine. And, and you know, if you then look at what's going on at surrealism at the time, what's going on in Dominguez's artistic and personal preoccupations, Basically, um, and if you keep looking forward at surrealist opinions of the sewing machine, what you see is there was already by this time a discourse going on about the female garment worker as someone who is irresponsibly, uh, you know, experiencing sexual pleasure with her work machine. So this is obviously kind of a ludicrous image. I mean, the surrealists are, you know, responding to this ridiculous, outmoded medical, you know, his uh, medical discourse about hysteria um, and, uh, you know, making, taking it for their own. It's sort of like taking a dirty joke and then, you know, making a whole artistic, um, you know, subcategory with it. And there is a, a humor here. I think there's actually a lot of humor in these images in the book. But um, I think, nevertheless, there is a way in which there was a real interest in showing how the machine, the work machine, could be deregulated by use. And the female worker might be the prime example by which the machine is somehow tied up with all sorts of social fears about the body, about Mm -hmm. sexuality, about productivity. What is productivity? Is it of the commodities that we make and consume or is it, you know, human life? Um, and so, you know, a lot of the profound anxieties that were that were held particularly by French society in the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And, you know, I mean, um, the, you know, women, French women didn't have suffrage until quite late in the 20th century. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's an interesting societal example. Um, but I, I will say one more thing. This becomes more legible, uh, more believable if you think about what was going on between Surrealists and the French Communist Party at the time. And yeah. I try to talk quite a bit about that because they were Surrealists were just breaking with the party in the mid-30s when this painting was made with the French Communist Party. There was a rupture, a final rupture. And um, the Communist Party, along with saying, well, the Surrealists are critical of, of work, were also claiming um, that the perverse sexuality of members of the movement was a problem. Um, and so there, there definitely was a link of the fears of onanism or masturbatory pleasure, um, non-reproductive mas- masturbatory pleasure by the Communist Party as being linked to the Surrealist work refusal. 
which is a leap to make, but it was mm. it's there in the texts if you look at it. And so there is, um, particularly in the work of Dali and in, in some other areas, um, a kind of building discourse about masturbation as a non-reproductive form of sexual pleasure that could be inferred as, you know, linking again to um, an anti-capitalist, anti-bourgeois position. Mm. And so ultimately the painting for me becomes um, related to this old medical discourse about the sewing machine as a masturbatory device. Um, But that being taken by the surrealists and used for, you know, I would say quite, um, quite innovative and unexpected um, political, social, uh, gender-based ideas. Mm. So here we get into, I think, very interesting territory, which leads me to question a little bit some of the ideas of feminism, which is, of course, a kind of term that we fit onto these these events and onto these artworks retrospectively. So you perform a slightly gendered reading of the work of someone like Dominguez, but you also note that his ev um, includes interrogation of all sorts of modes of production and, and all sorts of tools. And we might maybe think about Lee's famous uh, telephone lobster as one of those artwork archetypes that disables a tool of production um, and renders it useless from its intended application in, in productive life. So as much as I was asking earlier whether you believe that the bourgeois men were actually on the side of the factory worker, so to speak, I also want to... Uh, probe your thoughts a little bit about the potential of all these men now suddenly become becoming feminists. It's a great question, and I'm very glad you ask it. I do not see the surrealists as feminists, um, and certainly not Dominguez. I don't see this artwork as feminist. Hmm. Um, I do come at the material with a feminist approach, which I think is very a very distinct thing for me, um, in the sense that I'm interested in ferreting out threads that I think, again, I'm kind of interested in, in rerouting some of the material that could be useful today, and I, for us today, for me, um, very selfishly. And and I think that this this thread of female sexual agency or autonomy that I'm interested in in surrealism is is quite subtle and in some cases latent. I mean, I I think about the idea of latency in this Dominguez chapter um, and the the kind of degrees of um, you know repression um, that. Uh, you know, or patriarchal sexism that might, you know, remove various surrealists at different at different levels from what we might call uh, a feminist approach to the female body, female sexuality, et cetera. So, so absolutely, I want to clarify that I do not, I do not see um, this Dominguez painting or any of the images as feminist. That's not really the argument I'm trying to make. Um, but it's interesting to think that I'm, I'm generous in that regard. And again, I would say that the generosity probably that it looks like is again a form of selfishness on my part to <laughs> to um to try to to you know one of I'm I'm interested in the idea of the historian um as someone who's kind of uh, a bricolure finding <laughs> treasures that could be re- rehabilitated I guess it's sort of a Benjaminian idea a little yeah. bit um or things certainly unexpected avenues of of thought so I'm interested in thinking about things that are unexpected or maybe that I haven't encountered so much before in the literature. And, and it is, there's a lot of counterintuitive aspects to the analysis as a whole. Um, 
So the, and I don't think that the surrealist interest and in what was called at the time perverse sexuality could also be called truly liberatory. It's fraught with problems. And so I talk uh, a little bit in the chapter about the surrealist researches into sexuality, which were a series of collective discussions by various members of the group or um, adjacent um, associates of the group about the state of modern sexuality. And it's fascinating to read. It's all translated if you want to read the, the discussions on sexuality um, and talk a little bit about some of the views or ideas that come up for the different members as they discuss specifically female sexuality. Um, and there is, I mean, absolutely kind of like this question of how is surrealist art related to its radical politics? Um, how is surrealist ideas about sexuality related to both of those things. And, and they're all kind of tied up in this, you know, confusing bag because surrealism doesn't want to, um, you know, it's not interested in logic. It's not interested in rationalism. There's this kind of snowball effect of its aims for the human because they're, what they're hoping is a kind of, um, they're hoping for a kind of reconstitution of the, the whole human, including the desires that are typically repressed in a societal sphere. Um, so, so those kinds of things that someone like Freud would say cannot be a part of civilization that, that drives of the id, et cetera. Um, and so it, so I think that in itself is hard to understand why sexuality would ever link to politics. It's, it's not something that one is familiar, you know, thinking about, but, um, you know, just in the way that I'm interested in the surrealist preoccupation with the sewing machine as a device that could be seized or involuntarily experienced by its operators as a masturbatory device, I'm also interested in seizing their artworks for an analysis that could hmm. be um, that could be pushed into a speculative direction or a direction that would in itself be appropriative of, of the, um, some of the ideas that they had. And so I, I think I move into um, a realm of interpretation that takes quite a bit of license with the historical factors, um, because the story I want to tell is one that is not easily pieced together. Um, and, and so this is where I would say this is a highly theoretical approach or highly mm -hmm. hypothesis-driven reading um, of, of this work. The, the, I mean, it's very hard to accurately or fairly summarize the male surrealist view of the woman, of the female body. Uh, by and large, you know, again, I would deny that we could ever call it feminist. I would also deny that there was misogyny across the board. There certainly was misogyny. There were some progressive views by these, um, by the male surrealists and then, of course, the female surrealists themselves. The legacy of female surrealists is absolutely the way in which we could find a reservoir of information, ideas, histories that would allow us to counter the dominance of straight white masculinity and surrealism. Hmm. So one of the things that becomes quite interesting, as you mentioned, the dominance of certain ideas, but also leave space for variations in attitudes, is that surrealism as we think of it now, uh, particularly in the light of exhibitions like the traveling exhibition, Surrealism Without Borders, that try to turn surrealism into this global movement, is that surrealism um, refuses to go away, it refuses to die. 
So one of the things that you do in the book um, that was, for me, incredibly interesting because it took me by, by some surprise. Again, I'm not, I'm no art historian, so maybe that's on me. But you take us in your final case study into the US, into the 1970s, and you look in particular at the Chicago movement, surrealist movement. So we're 50 years apart, we're on a different continent, but we're still somehow thinking about surrealism as having some kind of roots in the very very early 1920s manifestations. Yes, thank you for that. I do hope that the book in some ways moves toward connecting us to things that we could actually relate to in surrealism, which is part of why I worked to publish that recent New York Times op-ed on the Great Resignation as related to the mm. coronavirus pandemic and then a follow-up in the Washington Post talking specifically about um, surrealist wage labor abolitionism at, as connected to the the big quit, as they're calling it, in the United States. I'll include links to both these articles in the show notes again. And they might well inspire some of our listeners to quit the job. Yes. Chapter four um, is focusing on a, a group of surrealists who have been extremely important for the history of the movement, but scholarship in surrealism, scholarship in, on surrealist literature, on surrealist art history, right? The surrealism studies as a big interdisciplinary field with lots of scholars from different backgrounds. Um, but in general, surrealism studies hasn't fully done enough work in order to um, integrate the contributions of the Chicago Surrealists into the movement as a whole. This is partly not needed because Chicago Surrealism itself has published so much material. Um, Chicago Surrealism itself has is an entire sort of discourse strand within the history of Surrealism. And so in a way, um, I would say the, the point of secondary discourse by someone like myself, a scholar, a historian, is almost not necessary. <laughs> but um, I, I wanted to turn to that period of the 1960s when these are a group of young Americans at the beginning of the student movement, very interested in the civil rights movement, and eventually the Vietnam War protests, to in order to speak to a journal that they had, which was called The Rebel Worker, that actually predated their their self-identification as actual surrealists, which was all about, um, you know, uh, the agency of the worker, worker autonomism, um, worker resistance, worker collectivism, and um, as related to the um, the historical formation of the industrial workers of the world, which was a fascinating union, kind of cross-trade union, international um, and, and ideally inclusive and general union that was formed in the early 20th century in the United States, but was meant to be for workers around the world, as its mm -hmm. moniker says, IWW. Um, I was interested in, in, in thinking about that the role of that journal in relationship to their growing surrealism, they become this group of young students become surrealists by 1966, some of them. And then secondly, there is a fascinating exchange between the Chicago surrealists and Herbert Marcuse, the uh, Frankfurt School philosopher who made obviously um, you know renowned contributions to the development of the student movement um, or forms of what you might call countercultural resistance, although the word counterculture is problematic in many regards. But the exchange of the Chicago Surrealists, the epistolary exchange um, 
over the course of the 1970s is is fascinating. And it's a it's a larger discussion than just the question of what is the role of work in our society, what does wage labor mean, and how do we get out of this this system that we're in, this system of nine to five, and it's bigger than that. But it speaks to the continued interest in this particular um, protest demand in surrealism. The Marcuse discussion kind of ultimately leads up to the the kind of lingering question, which is, what do we do to make change or how do we make change? Yeah. And Marcuse and the Chicago Surrealists actually agree that surrealism could be, that all of the surrealist ideas, the surrealist approach, surrealist collectivism could be a concrete contribution to meaningful social change, which is you know, a fascinating point of of concurrence. Of course, if you look at surrealism over the course of the 20th century, you think about, you know, the big moments where surrealism conflagrations of where surrealism meets with Marxist theory, you know, such as, you know, Benjamin or Adorno, but this late moment with Marcuse had not received enough attention and as someone who wrote a dissertation on Benjamin and surrealism, hmm. I could not resist um, doing the archival and field work and oral research work, a very different kind of work, in order to get closer to understanding what Marcuse thought about this group in particular and surrealism as a whole. Hmm. So we get into very interesting territory. And I think one of the things that this continuity that you refer to throws up is the usefulness of the term surrealism. And I don't necessarily want to get into this completely meta situation that, that checks whether art history is a good thing or not, and whether we, we have a tendency to create myths where they don't exist. So I want to ask you uh, about some of the markers that let us continue to apply this label and continue to use the same critical devices that we might have devised for the French work in the 1920s. How come these still apply? And one of the things that came to mind, to, to be kind of simplistic about it, is a certain degree of um, aesthetic continuity that we might want to observe. So one of the artists you look at in the Chicago group is uh, an artist called Robert Green. And just to be a little bit facile, I want to ask whether his work looks anything like the work of the French Surrealists. So if you get a chance to visit the Surrealism Beyond Borders exhibition, if you can get to the Tate, I highly recommend it. And it's interesting in the, I'm not sure how it will be hang in the Tate, but um, in the New York iteration of the exhibition, there aren't any, there are, there are very few Chicago surrealist artworks. What we have actually is a wall of text. And um, it's interesting, and even in my own catalog essay for that exhibition, where I talk about Chicago surrealism, I'm focusing on the political tracks, the, 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 uh, essentially the publications of the movement. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, in general for people, a kind of, um, if you know about Chicago surrealism, and of course there were many other American surrealist groups there mm -hmm. have been and are, um, it's not just the Chicago group, but the Chicago group for a time really did bring together Americans from disparate cities and then also helped, I would say, launch um, the dispersal of of surrealism into new groups later on, but um, that there is not so much a cohesive visual style um, or aesthetic, aesthetic um, 
vibe uh, or an aesthetic kind of undercurrent as you were as you were asking. Um, I chose to write about Robert Greene because Robert Robert is an activist, was an activist, and an actual saboteur, a labor activist, mm-hmm. uh, and a worker um, who you know a blue collar worker who was interested in linking the found object aesthetic of surrealism um, with the uh, advances in assemblage aesthetics from the mid 20th century in the United States. Now I'm thinking of, of something like Fluxus um, or of, you know, the happenings movements linking this kind of found object aesthetic of American junk, you know, industrial detritus to um, to a surrealist tradition. And Green is Robert Green is not well known at all. I think I'm not totally sure, but that my book may be one of the first secondary or art historical publications to discuss his work um, in in a focused manner. Um, and I have another book coming out. It's an, a co-edited volume with Elliot King next month on Penn State University Press, where you'll see Green featured. Also, um, the um, assemblage before you were born from the late '60s is featured on the inside cover. And um, so, so I think Green is is definitely one of the most important American surrealist artists. Um, but yeah, there's the found object aesthetic for sure, and there's the, absolutely the continued interest on automatism. Green, in particular, does an experiment with uh, a 1970s computer program where he uh, works with programming the computer with a friend and um, experiments with automatism, basically um, <laughs> computational automatism, which is now a daily part of our lives. I don't know about you, but my smartphone is constantly saying whatever it wants to my friends. But we have to remember, I mean, the diversity of international surrealism over the last 100 years is so, uh, so vast. Even the Met Tate show cannot fully represent global surrealism um, and uh, you know which does a very good job of saying these are just glimpses of things but even for scholars going to this exhibition this current exhibition there are things that people have never seen you know that 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 were not really understood surrealism in China you know surrealism in Southeast Asia that uh, a lot of groundbreaking work was done and so um, you know, I tend to be an art historian who's more invested in ideas, actually, than in the history of the artwork as a commodity, per se. Um, and maybe that's why I like surrealism. But I would always place surrealism's ideas and and social goals above its aesthetic. Its aesthetic is part of that mm. for me, but I would not say that there's a consistency of the aesthetic. Okay, okay. Well, as we wrap up, Abigail, I want to circle back to the question of technology and as I was reading the book, I kept on thinking about the prognosis from the last hundred years that have promised us, on one occasion, total liberation from the drudgery of labor, um, and on another, the enslavement and the complete redundancy of the human by exactly the same means. So given that the surrealists have, have engaged with these questions to, to a certain extent, and given that, to come back to the title of your book, you are interested in something that could be described as a technical sabotage, this kind of labor warfare. I'm going to ask you a slightly unfair question. Um, what is it, in a nutshell, that the surrealists have taught us about labor and technology and attitudes to it that we can use today? Thank you for this wonderful question. Um, I think the bottom line is that they teach us that the surrealists, as I've come to understand their wage labor abolitionism, is that we should never stop questioning 
what we want for the quality of our lives, that there's an endless horizon of desire mm-hmm. um, and possibility for the fulfillment of human life, and that we shouldn't rest on our laurels or merely kind of stand on the shoulders of those who came before us in terms of the um, labor gains that were fought for. Um, because as you can see, they easily slip away. I mean, the eight-hour day, you know, it's a what is the eight-hour day now, right? Um, the, the gig economy, of course, there will be endless ways in which which capitalism or the market or our social structure will will attempt to get more out of us. And so, so the bottom line is is to to not stop questioning, um, to not stop desiring, um, and also to to never give up forms of resistance, whether or not you're a labor activist um, or you're someone who is merely saying, I wish I could quit my job. How do I get out of here? I want higher wages. The demand is more obvious in surrealism, the demand for Hmm. what life could be for humans. The responsibility question is there too. And I think it's a little bit more in the background and and my colleagues who are working on the question of surrealism and ecology um, are doing a, a, a great job with thinking about you know, surrealism grappling with the effects of capitalism on, you know, beyond the human world. Um, you know, the the way, the practical way that the surrealists dealt with their wage labor abolitionism is not a great model. I mean, they, they I talk about the, the notion of permanent strike in my book, which is the idea of a lifelong resistance to a career or to, um, wage labor, as you would call it, in terms of, of having a job, right, of salaried labor. They typically tried to replace that with gig-based labor, as we would call it now, or precarious work, which was very challenging. Some of them did it better than others. Um, some of them really struggled financially. Some of them made quite a bit of money. Of course, some of them had jobs, you know, here and there, um, usually white-collar jobs, um, you know, and that this is this was not a great solution, and so um, I think we're left we're left wondering, well, what can we actually do? And so when we turn to, you know, people like Kathy Weeks, who's a current scholar of the problem of work, her book was really important for me. Um, I guess it was from from about ten years ago, and you know, we could actually try to think about what would uh, a UBI, a universal basic income, how could that help us? I think I agree with the surrealists. That technology is like a weapon. I mean, it's sort of like, how do you use it? You know, like what it's, it is there to, you know, techne is there for us to use. It's part of the human destiny on this planet. I don't think we can ever get away from our relationship with techne, but, but the question is, how are we going to use it? The surrealists mostly show us the possible dangers and pleasures of technology. (laughs) Um, I don't think they have a concrete solution for it. Some of them were more more pro-technology than others. Lafargue, Paul Lafargue, who they really liked, was interested in technology, and so was Chaufoyer, you know, who who had a very scientific approach to labor and the, the organization of society. So I would not call them fully anti-technology, but skeptics in that regard. And um, so I would say, you know, if anything, the the final part of my book, the epilogue, talks about the surrealist desire for the humanization of the machine and the mechanization of the human. So what mm-hmm. I would call kind of symbiosis between human and machine. That's almost a post-human perspective. What exactly does that mean? That raises a lot of questions. But if we can continue to, um, you know, kind of question what we're doing it with our devices, right, that are nearly prosthetic at this point, 
that the, the phone that is like part of our hand now, and this will this will only continue to increase as time goes by in the future. But um, the the question of the symbiosis of human and machines will be, I believe, will continue to be crucial for that horizon. And that also, of course, relates to work because work and technology are very closely bound up today for most workers. Well, because thank you. Thank you so much for not, not denying us the pleasure of technology and not refusing to work for this hour, hour and a bit. Thanks, Pierre. It was wonderful. Surrealist Sabotage and the War on Work by Abigail Sussex is published by Manchester University Press. I'm Pierre Delancey and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time. Thank you.